So just covered in Vegemite then. <laughs> gallons and gallons of whiskey. I'll giggle your muff. I only care about the stew. in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that will go where it's appreciated. I mean it! I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. I'm not sure it matters much to me. Tom Schneider, cold as ice, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Cold as Lady Mary, you mean. She's just practical. (laughs) We have got four new countries this week. And an exotic bunch they are. They are Colombia, Bangladesh, Netherlands Antilles, and the Palestinian Territory. Fantastic. Yes. That sounds very exciting. I'm excited. So, before we get into telegrams from our cousins, we're just taking a moment to clarify uh, what qualifies as a telegram from a cousin. That would be either an email, which you can send to our account at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com, or a Facebook message that you can send us at our Facebook page. Just wanted to clear up any confusion. People were a little concerned why their tweets weren't being considered. It's not tweets from the cousins. That's right. <laughs> it's telegrams and by telegrams we mean emails (laughs) so if anybody can find a way to send us a telegram we would be impressed Mm -hmm. i don't think and a little freaked out yeah no it's it's true i would be i would be concerned maybe there would be a mysterious benefactor Mm, that only happens in dickens no i want a mysterious benefactor well we all do tom (laughs) but they're just you know with the internet it's hard to maintain that aura of mystery well in the meantime we have our beloved cousins who do make us very happy. Uh, Our first telegram today is from our Dowager cousin, Jackie, who has some feedback on episode two. Good call on the actor playing Lieutenant Courtney. According to IMDb, he hasn't been in any episodes of Doctor Who, but he was in a couple of episodes of the Doctor Who spinoff Torchwood as Captain Jack's long-lost and ultimately unhinged brother, Gray. I remember him because his attempt at a flat Americanish accent was terrible. Also, his futuristic clothes made him look like the saddest, dirtiest Michelin man ever. <laughs> so Edith was a bit of a homewrecker, but that farmer kissed her too, so she's not solely to blame. I felt bad that she finally found something she genuinely enjoyed but couldn't keep doing it for obvious reasons. I just felt bad for Edith this whole season, really. Finally, some poetry for Sir Dick, and it's topical, bitches. Richard Carlyle threatens Lavinia's ruin. Gilded Age, Rupert Murdoch. That's a great poem. That's Yeah, that's not bad. I really enjoy that. Yeah. So thank you, Dowager Cousin Jackie, for coming through with the haikus. <laughs> yes. Next we have former Cousin of the Week Phoenix. She dropped us a line as well. Hello, my dear cousins Tom and Kelly. I'm currently listening to your newest episode, Now That's One Irish Monkey, and I noticed you didn't call a ceasefire on anyone this week. Mm. Again... I have to come to the defense of Edith. She is just very unlucky, and while she is attractive in an overbitey way, she's not as attractive as Mary or even her younger sister, Sybil. Mary has parties and suitors, and Sybil has her nurse work. What does poor Edith have? An overbite? It's very <laughs> sad that she can't find a hobby or a lover or a dentist to correct that horrendous overbite. Poor Edith. As per your request for the Crawley sisters' portrait in, in embroidery, I'd have to have an outline of them made because I can't draw. Stick figures is all I got. If I could get a black and white sort of cartoon drawing, then I would be more than happy to bust it out, as it were. I happen to like Lavinia and think she is a strong character, especially later in the series. Sorry, spoilers. 
Anyway, I have bored you long enough with my ramblings, and you have more important cousins' letters to get to. My love to all the cousins, your ever-faithful cousin in Utah, Phoenix. Well, first of all, that was in no way boring. That's right. I enjoyed how many times you worked overbite into that letter. That's fantastic. <laughs> we always appreciate that. We did actually have a mix-up last week yes. with the character Ceasefire. We had chosen a character, and it was, in fact, Cousin Phoenix's favorite, Lavinia. That's correct. We decided to give Lavinia a break last week. But we may or may not have recorded last week's podcast somewhat out of sequence. It's possible. Due to certain members of this podcast being extremely busy. <laughs> we apologize if you, you know, it's, it's like the sixth sense. If you go back and listen, yeah. you'll realize that it was Lavinia all along. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, we, we will not forget this week. Everything is back in order and uh, Bristol fashion ship shape. <laughs> yes. Uh, and now a letter from Cousin Emmy, who writes, Dear Kelly and Tom, my name is Emmy, I'm from the Netherlands, and I think your show is awesome. I think I might be your first Dutch listener, because the week after I downloaded it, you added Netherlands to your list of countries. Anyway, since I started listening, I've been cleaning my room twice as thorough on Mondays, as I don't want to start studying again before I've heard the whole podcast. My mom is very happy about you guys and sends her greetings. She then writes some more, which we are redacting because it has spoilers for later in the season. And finally, she says, furthermore, I am team Molesley with the whole give a book to Anna thing, because sure, he is not dazzling, but still, Anna has liked many a stupider person. As you see, I'm not really team Bates. Best wishes, Emmy. Wow, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, greetings to your mom as well, cousin (laughs) Emmy. I have to say, both for the fact that she made cleaning one's room sound really cool, <laughs> and the fact that she's Team Molesley. Right. Like, for sheer ballsiness, I think this gets yeah. Cousin of the Week. I agree. And she didn't even, like, make us anything. See? <laughs> That's right. We're open-minded. <laughs> Thank you, Emmy. We are so excited to have you and the country of the Netherlands on our side. Okay, so congratulations again to Emmy. Now it is time for us to announce the much-awaited character ceasefire for this episode. That is right. We're going out on a limb here, and we're calling a character ceasefire on Matthew. It's true. Which, I am not sure I'm going to make it, because, (laughs) I don't know, there's just something about his face that's so punchable to me. (laughs) Well, all right. I I mean, look. I think I'll be fine myself, but... I just, I don't know. Just for some reason, this series in particular, I'm just like, oh! (laughs) Get out of my face! (laughs) So, uh, now on to the recap. Okay. So, it is 1918. My, time does fly when you're cramming many years into a limited narrative period. (laughs) It certainly does. Yes, this is almost a year later than the last episode. You should keep that in mind. Yes, keep that in mind. We will. (laughs) We won't let you forget it. That's right. Apparently, there is going to be another Soldier's Benefit concert that they love so well at Downton, and Mary just will not be in it. She hates it. She is- it's pathological at this point. <laughs> Every time there's a concert, she refuses. There was a thing with Sir Anthony Strallen. That's right. She wouldn't, you know, she was making she, her excuses. She had to go saddle up Diamond. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the first one, you know, she was going to just stay in London. And now she does not want anything to do with this concert. So I think, I don't know, something happened at a concert when she was <laughs> young. I don't know what, but... Uh, yeah. McGee says that she needs to do it, that they, they need to keep the soldier's spirits up. This is a, a common refrain at Downton Abbey. Isabel comes in. Uh, Mary has agreed to be in the concert. She'll give them one song. And Isabel asks when Major Clarkson's rounds are. Uh, apparently they already happened. She was not invited, as McGee 
happily informs her. And then McGee immediately turns her attention to Mrs. Hughes to go over the linen books, despite the fact that Isabel just went through them, and just sort of turns her back on Isabel and walks out. I mean, and Mrs. Hughes doesn't even look at Isabel. That is correct. Uh, It is as if she is wearing some sort of invisibility cloak. (laughs) Very strange. Up in the library, Edith is handing out the mail and notices Ethel flirting with Major Bryant. As have we all. Indeed. That's one saucy ginger. Yeah, it is. When he says, uh, you know, oh, I kept her talking, don't blame me. And Edith's like, I don't. Yeah. Or don't blame her, sorry. Yeah. Edith knows what's up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She's kissed a farmer or two in her time. (laughs) She has. She knows how the power differential works here. (laughs) Yeah. I did wonder, would Major Bryant, would would he have had servants? What sort of class would he be if you were a major? Um, I mean, you know, I mean, I think you could be a major coming from any class, but he seems pretty well healed to me. Yeah. Because there's, you know, you don't get to spend a whole lot of time, but the the idea was that these are the officers coming in. Right. Most of whom are upper class and, you know, have spent time in a house like this before. Right. That's the impression that I get. Yeah. I just sort of wondered that about, does he realize how inappropriate he's being? He knows oh, he's being yeah. somewhat inappropriate, but, like, was he raised around servants? Good point. I don't so, know. Yeah. I don't know either. Do you know? <laughs> At the Dower House, the Dowager Countess wants to know if Mary is sure that Lavinia did not, in fact, boff Sir Richard, which we established in the last episode, which, as you remember, is almost a year ago. Uh-huh. A year ago. But and now they're, they're having this conversation. Still trying to figure this out. And, you know, saying, are you sure you really want to marry this guy who's a uh, blackmailer? And Mary's like, yeah. You know, it's, he comes from a tough world. He's rich and getting richer, which, you know, yeah. That's the whole point of blackmail. Right. To get richer. It's blackmail people, be rich. That's the business plan. It, it is. And it's going well. He's planning to buy a country house when the war is over. Apparently, there's going to be a... Uh, buyer's market for country houses uh, the dowager countess is very upset about that because you know she's saying oh you know you'll be dancing on the grave of some fallen family yeah and mary ever the cold-hearted pragmatist (laughs) basically says uh yeah a bunch of them are not going to be around anymore and i don't want to be one of them yeah like i can dance on the grave of a fallen family or i can be a fallen Uh family and i think she's making the right choice (laughs) granny then asks if sybil has a crush on anyone apropos Uh, of nothing yeah but she thinks it odd that she doesn't. She had, uh, I forget, how does she say it? She had a like a parade of crushes, yeah. or a, a fountain of crushes, <laughs> a parliament of crushes. What's, yeah. what's the word? A there? murder of crushes. <laughs> yeah. In any case, she had many crushes. At I bet Sybil's she age. did. Yeah. What a wily young vixen she must have been. <laughs> That's right. But. Given that Sybil does not have any open crushes and that it's wartime, Granny suspects that there may be an illegitimate crush in Sybil's life Mm -hmm. because uh, wartime lowers barriers and all that sort of thing. I mean, you know, look at their great aunt Roberta. Mm -hmm. You know, after Lucknow, she ran off with a cannon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Mary then calls her out for accusing Sybil of not being worldly enough and not taking her responsibilities as a noble woman seriously, but then also being upset with Mary for, you know, basically trying to do the same thing. Right. She says that she's being very contrary, and the Dowager Countess says, I am a woman, Mary. I may be as contrary as I choose. And although I feel like that is in support of antiquated gender roles, I really kind of like that line. (laughs) 
I think from her perspective, it's like, listen, I've got about five rights in the entire world, and one of them is to be contrarian, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to to let it slide. Going to use it. Yep. No, and I don't think she's being that contrary. You know, she's simply preaching the middle way. Yeah. Which I think the Buddha would agree with me is probably the best <laughs> approach to love and relationships. The Buddha always agrees with you. Notably not mentioned in this conversation is Edith, who <laughs> did in fact have not just a crush, but like some full-on saliva swapping. That's right. With a member of the lower class. Yeah. So, again... She reached first wicket with that farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say maybe... Uh, Isabel borrowed Edith's invisibility cloak, but people are still continuing not to notice Edith at all. So yeah, that's true. Maybe she just had a copy made. <laughs> Down in the kitchen at Downton, Isabel is meddling in the kitchen because there's been a change in the servants' lunchtime, which has altered the lunchtime for the men who are recovering. Mrs. Patmore is basically, again, giving her the cold shoulder and not engaging. But Mrs. Hughes comes in to find out what all the fuss is about. And Isabel says, you know, everything has been changed and I don't know why and I can't get any answers out of these people. And Mrs. Hughes just tells her, oh, well, McGee altered all of the schedules. And Isabel is furious, just livid. Mm -hmm. And so she storms out and then Mrs. Hughes comes over to Mrs. Patmore and says, it was always a question of when. And Mrs. Patmore just looks at her like... What are you talking about? I haven't been paying attention for the last 10 minutes, and now all of a sudden I'm supposed to care? Yeah. Like, I never cared about the battle between Isabel and Cora. I only care about the stew. Uh-huh. Like, that's, you know, I think it's a healthy attitude I on agree. Mrs. Patmore's part. I only care about the stew, and I'm not even a cook. <laughs> it's delicious. Isabel storms off and storms into McGee's a room where McGee is transacting some business. Yes, which does appear to be free of soldiers, although I think I saw just, like, some stuff in there. Yeah. You know, some valuables. Does not appear to be the small library, however, which I thought was the only place they were going to go. Sounds like somebody overreacted. Seems that way. So Isabel has her big confrontation and gets a good line in off at the beginning, in which she says, I cannot accuse you of being unprofessional, as you have never held a profession in your life. Mm -hmm. Boom! Yeah. Which McGee, she feels that one. Yeah. She uh, rears up a little bit. Well, but you don't want to cross McGee. No. You really? Because in her sort of hazy befuddlement, we have forgotten that beneath that rosy looking skin beats the cold black heart of an evil barracuda. <laughs> That's right. Oh my God. No. She's so mean. She is. I mean, she is Mary's mother. Yeah. Like, you can really, you really for the, see for it. For the first time, yeah. I'm beginning to understand. I'm, I'm still pretty sure she hatched. <laughs> but the the genetic material is now making itself known. Yeah. So, yeah. In, indeed, McGee turns the tables on Isabel, says that it is her house and she will do whatever she wants, and that she is in charge right alongside Isabel, by which she means on top of, uh-huh. you know, and just makes it clear that she is not going to change anything. And Isabel says, I will have to go somewhere where I am appreciated. Where she has value. Where she has value. That's right. And Cora, like, before she even finished the sentences, it's like, good. Yep. And, Go. Yep. And Isabel's like, oh, I, I I mean it. And she's like, oh, well, great. Bye. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Are we still talking about this? <laughs> yeah. Because I have some timetables to rearrange, especially now that you're not going to be here. <laughs> Boy, they thought I was rearranging timetables before. <laughs> no, she's like, oh, if you're gone, then I'll put all the timetables back. That was really just to mess with you. <laughs> Mission accomplished. 
Uh, so Isabel has cornered herself. She was just making a threat, and now she's stuck with it. And uh, that's that's the end of Downton for Isabel. Uh-huh. Cut outside, and Sybil is talking to Branson, who's wearing an extremely unflattering mechanics jumpsuit as he works on the car. Yeah. Is this part of the reason that he's not as cute? Maybe. It I mean, makes him look like a weeble or something. Or like a like an action figure, like a Gumby. It's not a good look. No, it's a terrible look. But she asks him why he promised Carson that he would not start any more protests when he wouldn't promise her not to start any more protests. Right. So This he... is a line I feel like there was some plot point that got cut. Right. I mean, unless she's referring specifically to the event where he tried to douse that general in muck. Right, which is all I could protest, assume. But... Well, I mean... It, it still was one. And I mean, you know, Carson would have needed a promise that he wouldn't do that again. But, I mean, what it tells me is that he must have told Sybil about it. Again, are they just having this conversation a year <laughs> from when the stuff happened? So, I don't know. Like, well, and did it, we miss a timestamp? Like, it just seems egregious. It does. But at the same time, in this conversation, they do talk about the Easter Rising. which That's true. You know, so they... At this point later in the conversation, they're aware of how much Mm -hmm. time Time has passed. So, yes, they do discuss the Easter Rising, and she is talking about, you know, whether he would have gone to fight. And he says, yes, if it hadn't been put down in six weeks. He's very discouraged, as well one would be. Mm -hmm. So Mary sidles up and sees them and puts two and two together, thanks to Granny's meddling. She catches a whiff of the old class mingling going on. And uh, so as she's walking toward them... Branson is foolishly telling Sybil that he will stay at Downton until she agrees to run away with him. Mm-hmm. And he tells her that she's in love with him, which, fellas, this is a <laughs> great way to tell your lady friend that you think that you know what's best for her and that she doesn't have any agency. Great way. Tell her she's in love with you and uh, enjoy your black eye for the next <laughs> couple of weeks. Unfortunately, Sybil is a little flustered because then Mary suddenly walks up mm-hmm. and asks if Branson can take her to Rip It at Three to get some things from Mama. And she asks Sybil if she wants anything. And Sybil like, just does this classic, like... 13-year-old, <laughs> nothing you can find in Rippin, and just, like, storms away. Yeah, and I'm like, but but everything's in Rippin. I know! <laughs> I'm going to Rippin right now. I wish. I know, I have to finish this podcast. Rippin, city of a thousand dreams. <laughs> I want to see the uh, promotional video from the Rippin Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> yeah. Stamps, <laughs> postcards, harem pants. <laughs> Truly, we have it all. I don't know. (laughs) Isabel is talking to Dr. Clarkson about uh, the fact that she's getting kicked out. Dr. Clarkson pretty much is taking McGee aside. He says that a convalescent home isn't about medical training. It's about fresh air and clean sheets and good food. So McGee can handle that. So Isabel says that she has received a letter from... A cousin. A cousin that is working at the Wounded and Missing Inquiry Bureau in northern France, and she will go and work there. Isabel's very, like, whiny in this scene. I don't have a lot of sympathy for her here. Like, I understand that she's having a hard time, but she's like, you know, because Dr. Clarkson's like, oh, you know, you'll be missed. And she's like, oh, well, you're the only one. I'm certainly not going to be missed by Lady Grantham. And And it's just so ridiculous. I mean, she's devoted the last few years of her life to this hospital, and McGee just kicked her out of it. I guess so. that's true. Well, look, still, I think she should be a little more self-aware Okay. of how she's coming off as a petulant child. 
I mean, kind of like I am right now. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> on both counts. All right. Well, that actually brings us to one of our recurring segments with a young man who is neither wounded nor missing. <laughs> it's time for Tom Repeats History with our very own Tom. Yeah, I'm, I was looking into the Wounded and Missing Inquiry Bureau, where Isabella is heading off to. Uh, she mentions it's under the aegis of the Red Cross, and it was actually the Australian Red Cross oh. uh, that that's where it sort of got started under. So just covered in Vegemite then. <laughs> Perhaps so. It was founded by Vera Deacon, who was the daughter of Alfred Deacon, who was the Prime Minister of Australia off and on between 1903 and 1910. When World War One broke out, uh, she was actually in London, and she immediately started organizing Melbourne girls in London to get together and do war work. Her and her family then went home to Melbourne, and she took a nursing course, much much like the course that Sybil took, presumably. Her parents wanted her to stay home, but she wasn't gonna. She called uh, somebody that they knew that was a commissioner of the Red Cross in Cairo, and he said, yeah, come on out. So... Yeah, you don't look a sassy Australian gift horse in the mouth, man. That's right. So she headed off to Cairo, and they were there because at this point the Australians were mainly fighting in Turkey. Mm -hmm. So she headed off to Cairo. The day after she arrived, she founded the Wounded and Missing Inquiry Bureau. It was basically, you know, it was pretty much as the name implies. It was a way for people at home to find out what had happened to their relatives because they would just get something from the army saying, you know, has been reported missing mm-hmm. and then, you know, not have any more details about it, not know what to well, think. Well, there's a war on. That's right. And so they were basically like the middlemen between the people at home and the army establishment. I like that movie with Woody Harrelson in it. Wag the dog? <laughs> well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the army establishment did not like her. They were suspicious at first and jealous because for them it was just like this random woman meddling with their, you know, she was basically described as the court of appeal for people that had tried to go through the military authorities and just got nowhere. Mm -hmm. And the military resented the idea that they couldn't just like deny information to people. (laughs) Well, it looks like cousin Isabel will be in good company. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is much of the story of the various parts of the Red Cross throughout its history is just finding things that the army is just failing to do Mm -hmm. and doesn't care about and doing it. You know, I mean, it's back like Clara Barton when she founded the American Red Cross just because she went out to the battlefield after the battle and was like, "Um, all of your soldiers are lying out in the field wounded and nobody's doing anything about it. And the army's like... (laughs) So in any case, she kept it going. It processed as many as 25,000 inquiries in a year. And it, it was a, just a very valuable thing throughout the war, and it's still one of the functions of the Red Cross. Like, mm-hmm. I just went and looked at their website. They had a, a page up right now if you knew people that were in a typhoon in the Philippines mm-hmm. uh, early, or actually at the end of 2011. The, the, the department that she founded is still, you know, functional and still operating so, and helping people how find it, out about... How does it work, though? Like, do they go out and just, like, nag people? Basically, or? yeah. Basically, yes. All the files from World War One are online oh, at wow. the, the Australian War Memorial website. You can look through all of them and find every one. And I, so I just pulled up one at random. Just I looked up Smith, and it's twenty five pages. It's just you know the original inquiry about it, and then 
uh, testimony gathered from various people who were either, you know, in the same unit as mm-hmm. the person in question and all this sort of thing. And then their replies and eventually the correspondence back to the person who had asked about it. This would make a really great Law & Order spinoff. <laughs> that is true. Wound- uh, no, and it's Wounded and Missing. Perfect title. Yeah. Boom. Somebody call Dick Wolf. Mm, maybe yeah. don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. But I actually printed out just a, a, a bit of the record just because I found it just really powerful. So here's a, uh, a card. It's titled Missing 11 12 17. Uh, says, Dear Sir, Private Humphreys handed me your letters regarding Don Smith, late of my platoon, missing, and I will endeavor to give you as exact count of him as censorship regulations will permit. I was chosen for a rather ticklish job in the vicinity of Paskindale, the nature of which I cannot disclose, with four picked men, Don Smith being one of them. This job necessitated going through a very heavy artillery barrage and also most of the time being under rifle and machine gun fire. In one place, the artillery became so hot that we had to take shelter in shell holes for a few minutes, and it was while there that a shell burst in the hole where Smith had taken cover, killing another of my men and wounding a third. I can assure you he was not taken prisoner, and that he was marked missing is due to the fact that there was no trace of him. The shell was a 12-inch high explosive, so you can draw your own conclusions. He was one of the best soldiers I have ever had. Aww. Yeah. Poured on Smith. I know. And then this is the other thing that I printed out was the uh, letter from Donald Smith's brother Mm -hmm. who had written about it. It says, Dear Madam, I have to thank you for forwarding unofficial reports about my brother. It is all very sad, but we feel proud to know that he died nobly doing his duty to king and country. We hope that soon, out of this darkness and chaos, a new light will arise and that we will look forward to a settlement of the world's problems. Again, thank you. Believe me yours faithfully, J.B. Grant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what they were providing. And I just, you know, reading that, that this is just such a powerful thing Mm -hmm. that the army just didn't care about. And Vera Deacon found a way to do it. By the way, unlike most weeks, this research is not from Wikipedia, as Vera Deacon does not have a page (gasps) on Wikipedia. Her husband, who later on was an MP in Australia for a few years, does have a page, but she does not. And I think that that is bullshit. Uh, Well, you know, Tom, all the wikis are user-generated, so it must be the change you wish to see in the world. (laughs) Or at least in the Wikipedia. (laughs) All right, well, thank you very much for Tom Repeats History. That was fascinating. Mm -hmm. So speaking of women doing things, (laughs) Mary is practicing her singing with Edith playing the piano, and they're wishing they had a man to sing, which makes sense because the song is If I Were the Only Boy and You Were the Only Girl. Right. Uh, which that was in Gosford Park, right? I thought that, and then I went to look it up, and as for well, at least it wasn't in the soundtrack. Maybe it was in the movie somewhere. Because I remember Jeremy Northam's character plays that right, song, right? Novello. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so they're singing this song. Lord Grantham comes in and asks how it's going, and Mary <laughs> says that it's terrible, and she can't see why her singing would raise anyone's <laughs> spirits. Uh, so Lord Grantham then pulls her out in the hallway and tells her that uh, Sir Richard has finally asked permission to marry her. He apologizes for not having asked his permission before. Right. Which I would have thought Lord Grantham would have been a little bit more upset about it. But yeah. maybe the fact that Richard Carlyle is kind of terrifying <laughs> yeah. has mellowed him out a little bit. But she says she's decided to take him. Which I, look, in Mary's position, really can't blame her. Yeah. Like... Yeah, he might be a terrible person, and maybe he shook Lavinia. But, (laughs) 
you know, I mean, she doesn't have any other prospects. Yeah. Lord Grantham wishes he could be more confident in her motives, and she correctly shoots back that his motives for marrying McGee were exactly the same as hers. And so then he starts going, what about Matthew? And again, everybody, (laughs) calm down. This is not a dig on Matthew. This is a dig on all the people. Yes. You know, it's been several years at this point. Yes. Well, and, and Mary agrees with you. She says... Poor Matthew, how can he prove to you that he is in love with Lavinia? T- tear open his chest and carve her name on his heart. Lord Grantham is not appropriately even chastised by that grisly image. Yeah, I know, Lord Grantham, just like, but but Matthew's the only man I've ever loved. <laughs> anyway, Lord Grantham tells her that she should write to Matthew and tell him about her plans with Richard Carlyle because she owes him that, at least. And Mary, again, correctly says she doesn't think she owes Matthew anything. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, she's basically like, yeah, fine. I will write a letter to your boyfriend for you. <laughs> Isabel is departing Crawley House, and she's giving instructions to Mrs. Bird and Molesley on what to do if Matthew should show up and, you know, how she can be reached and all that sort It's of very thing. sweet because she tells Mrs. Bird to cook what he likes, not what's good for him. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a very nice little scene. She gives him the last instructions and, set, and heads off to France. And Molesley wonders to Mrs. Bird, what they do now? What indeed, Molesley? What indeed? Perhaps we will find out later. Sybil is dressing for dinner uh, in a hideous dress. Yeah, it's like... This dress is the worst dress that has ever been on Downton Abbey. Wow. Well, and yeah, it's even worse than Lavinia's flapper dress, I think. All right. Because it's got these useless fake sleeves. No, they're weird. It looks like somebody forgot to finish making the dress. Uh, I'm like, you know, I know there's a war on and everything. But (laughs) anyway, Mary comes in and asks what she and Branson were talking about. And Sybil gets kind of defensive. Right. Because Mary's kind of gently trying to introduce the subject and and Sybil gets very upset. She gets very upset for someone who's not really invested in this relationship. She's she's all defensive. She's like, what were you talking to Branson about? Uh And she says, I wanted to hire the car. That is what one talks to chauffeurs about, yes? Travel by road? (laughs) (laughs) So Sybil accuses her of taking Granny's side in this, which Granny knows nothing about. Uh, Right. But Mary says she's on Sybil's side, and Sybil says, then be on my side, which... Sybil does not have a side. Yeah, it's She doesn't true. have a side. She's, to make a World War I metaphor, she's a no man's land. Like, yeah. we, the audience, have no idea how she really feels about Branson. Right. And it's just, I don't you know. know. I mean, we know that she, you know, at least likes him and enjoys his company. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's something there. But... She likes him well enough to condescend to him. Right. On the front, Matthew is reading Mary's letter... And then he and William, who he addresses as Mason, mm-hmm. that being his last name, and that's that's how you do in wartime, they're going on an unauthorized patrol for reasons that uh, apparently don't exist, as he tells Mason. There's, there's no logic in wartime. We're going on patrol because we're going on patrol. Soon, however, they will be on leave. They're going to be taking a visit to Downton, and they discuss whether or not they would swap girlfriends, which... Is weird. It is weird. We can't say too much more because it's Matthew who introduces this line of reasoning. That's true. William says he would never swap. Right. And it it was an interesting question to me. I was like, and in this scenario, I'm an appropriate age for either one of them. Uh But if I was to choose between Daisy or Lavinia, who would I choose? Because, like, 
Lavinia's a little boring. Like, Daisy's, like, feisty, mm-hmm. but she's kind of... Weird looking? A little bit. And she... Well, not dumb, but ignorant. Uh-huh. Like, you know, she doesn't know much about anything. I guess I'd probably have to go with Lavinia. I feel like I'd pick Lavinia. You yeah. kind of remind me of Lavinia, actually. Aw. No, you're welcome. <laughs> Especially when you wear that ugly flapper dress around the house. <sighs> I love that dress. <laughs> Out in the yard, O'Brien and Thomas are smoking. What? Shocker. And they're discussing that Bates is working in a pub. Apparently, Thomas has had a letter from some mysterious friend of his who also knew Mr. Bates and said hi to Mr. Bates. And then Mr. Bates ignored him and refused to bring him any drinks. (laughs) Which, that is not the way to get tips, Bates. Yeah, seriously. If you're going to work in a pub, do a good job at it. Anyway, Daisy overhears them. She walks through the yard. And they worry that if Anna finds out that Bates is back in the county, Anna will drag him back by his cane, and then they'll have to deal with Bates again. Uh, Well, specifically, she'll drag him back by his stick, which... Oh, I'm sorry. I said cane. Oh! Oh! Man, I just miss everything that has to do with (laughs) O'Brien and that stick. (laughs) Double entendres, important plot points. (laughs) Anyway, but then Thomas makes some disparaging remarks about the fact that Lang is gone and that he was cuckoo bananas, and O'Brien defends him, and Thomas calls her a funny one, (laughs) because she's sweet and sour. And in this situation, I feel like Thomas is sort of like Julian Fellows' mouthpiece, (laughs) because I feel like at some point in these scripts, like, he got a note that was like, um... Okay, so, like, O'Brien's evil, but then she's nice, and then, but, like, in the same, and Julian Fells is like, she's fine. She's, she's sweet and sour. Sweet and sour is how it works. Ah! <laughs> we have an enjoyable mental picture of Baron Fellows. Our- <laughs> and he has an American accent, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And Good for him. And he's very irritable. <laughs> Church bells ring, and Molesley walks into the servant's dining room at Crawley House. And Mrs. Bird is there, and they discuss how they ain't got shit to do. Mm-hmm. It's Friday. They ain't got a job. Um, <laughs> in any case, they're just, yeah, they're there. They've cleaned everything a hundred times. They don't know what to do. All of a sudden, a scraggly dude with a cane wanders into the kitchen. He's a veteran, and he looks like Simon Pegg. Yeah. But he's not Simon Pegg. He's not even that guy who played the master on Doctor Who that time. Oh, yeah. That looked like Simon Pegg. I know. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're like, oh, thank God. Because before that guy showed up, it was just Mrs. Bird and Molesley in the scene. And yeah. they are a drab bunch. And, like, God, they're so unimaginative. Yeah. Like, if my boss, my, like, live-in boss was gone and her son was gone and, like, maybe they were both going to be killed, I would be throwing a kegger. <laughs> Even if it was just a keg of tea, like I would be raging. It would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They wreck up the place, then you've got something to clean. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, minus five points to Mrs. Bird and Molesley. <laughs> but they're, of course, skeptical about this scraggly person who wandered into their house at first, but. He's a veteran, and they eventually say, hey, you know what? Let's get this guy some food. I, I, I feel bad for the guy who wanders in and isn't a veteran, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, there's multiple causes of poverty, but anyway, yeah. this is not a podcast about the complexities of socioeconomic injustice, so we'll just leave it there. It isn't? Well, <laughs> unless you've been hearing, you edit it, so I don't know what you do when I'm done, so. <laughs> yeah, it's much different than you think. <laughs> That explains all these angry letters from Republicans we're getting. <laughs> we 
cut back to Matthew and William on patrol. They just appear to be walking around in an open field, yeah. which I am not a military mastermind. <laughs> but that does not seem like a good move. Again, not criticizing Matthew here, criticizing whoever instructed him to go on this non-patrol patrol. Indeed. So they're, you know, moving around in this field, but they encounter some Germans and fall to the ground, and they try to run away and kind of take cover behind this sort of, like, ravine drop, but there's more Germans there, and uh, they're spotted by said Germans and shot at. Things aren't looking good. No. Like, that's a lot of Germans, and if we know <laughs> anything about Germans, it's that they love killing indiscriminately. <laughs> Especially blonde-haired, blue-eyed people like these two. <laughs> yeah. So we cut from Matthew and William running across France to Molesley strolling towards Downton, which I do, and I think we've discussed this before, but I do really wonder how long of a walk it is from the village yeah. up to up to Downton Abbey. Agreed. But it seems plenty doable. He tracks down Mr. Carson. And uh, just volunteers to pitch in and help out with whatever needs doing. Scrubbing, brushing. Carson says that if they're not careful, uh, Lord Grantham will pinch him off Mr. Crawley. And from the expression on his face, it is clear that this is Mr. Molesley's wish. He's like, yes, please, please, he hits me. (laughs) Daisy is worried because William is late for his leave. He had apparently uh, written, announced that he was coming home and has not showed up yet. Uh, Mrs. Hughes tells her not to worry, and uh, in times like this, people disappear and turn up in the oddest of places, and Daisy says, Oh, like Mr. Bates in that pub. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Hughes stands stock still, and Daisy didn't realize that Mrs. Hughes wasn't aware of the situation. Mm. So uh, they cut to Mrs. Hughes, forcing Daisy to tell Carson about Mr. Bates. Daisy clearly has not recovered from her previous very (laughs) traumatic experiences being interrogated in the Carson Cave. Yeah. Uh, Carson Cave's kind of like the principal's office, you yeah. know? Like, you never, you don't want to go in there unless you're, like, the smarmy, like, <laughs> trouble-causing person. Then you're just like, how do I get in there? Yeah. So Daisy says that, that Mr. Carson should ask Thomas about Mr. Bates because it's from him that he heard what was going on. Yes. Also, Carson's reaction to the news of Mr. Bates is, a public house? <laughs> like, he's just stunned. He's like, oh, he's eating raw sewage. <laughs> no, I just think he has this vision of, like, this Edwardian version of Mos Eisley. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Mr. Bates would be such a bummer. In Mos Eisley. It's true. So Carson and Lord Grantham uh, do indeed ask Thomas about Bates' whereabouts and why they haven't informed and why he hasn't informed anybody about it. He's like, I, uh, I don't, I don't work for you. Mm-hmm. So, and in all honesty, I'm kind of on his side here. Like, it's really not. You know, you fired Mr. Bates. You yeah. kicked him out of your house. Yeah. Or no, wait. Oh, he just yelled at him. Bates quit. But anyway, every, yeah, look, yeah. everybody knew they were having a spat. Yeah. And well, and also, Thomas really doesn't work for no. you. No. He made that very clear from the beginning. Just because you thought you were getting one of your own uh-huh. doesn't mean that he's actually one of your own. And you should have realized that because we sure as hell did. Mm-hmm. And also, I think this is the first time in recorded history that an employee has gotten in trouble for not gossiping. <laughs> yeah. In the servants' hall, Daisy is reading something, and Mrs. Patmore comes in and yells at her to go to bed before she strains her eyes. And I just love the world that Mrs. Patmore lives in, where some sort of calamity is always 
on the verge of happening. Well, you know, maybe she's thinking about Daisy 40 years from now when she's in Mrs. Patmore's position and getting cataracts and yeah. such. So then on her way out, she encounters Thomas, who's wearing the most ridiculous nightshirt I've ever seen. Yeah. I have no idea. It looks like a sack, but a futuristic sack. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something to behold. But he yells at Daisy for talking to Carson about Mr. Bates. And then, you know, Daisy scurries off. Mm-hmm. And O'Brien asks him why he talked to Lord Grantham at all, you know, since he doesn't work for him. We just says, what was I supposed to do? Yeah. Tell him to get nodded? <laughs> like, uh, no, you shouldn't have done that. You know, <laughs> I've never heard of this getting knotted, but it sounds like a good party trick. <laughs> and then Ethel, who is sitting across the table knitting and plainly eavesdropping, uh, she's wondering why anyone would come back to service as they discuss that Mr. Bates potentially could be coming back, maybe. Right. Um, she wonders why he would want to come back from a public house. So apparently she's been to a public house at some point in the last 50 years oh. and is not horrified. <laughs> oh, I'm sure she has. Anyway, so she says, you know, she hates service and she wants to get out of it. She's ready for a new adventure and she doesn't care who hears her. Prompting O'Brien, official Downton soothsayer and killjoy, <laughs> to tell her to be careful what she wishes for. Dun, dun, dun. So we're not worried about Ethel. <laughs> Sybil wanders around the moor <laughs> of Downton. Uh, and there's a little voiceover of her remembering Branson saying that he wants her to run away with him. Which is too bad, because number one... You don't need that voiceover. No, she only has one plot line. Yeah. We know what she's thinking about. No, but I loved it. I wish that the voiceover had just been her thinking, I saw this scene in Sense and Sensibility once, and I've always wanted to recreate it. <laughs> and she does a fine job. She does. Like, you could swap that into Sense and Sensibility, and nobody would notice. Nope. Anna comes into the small library. Uh, Lord Grantham has summoned her because he wants to tell Anna about Bates, but she crafty vixen that she is already knows she knows more than they do they she, just know that he's in a pub uh-huh. she knows that it's the red lion in kirby Morrison. Mm-hmm. she tells him that bates is doing very well and he's not been back to downton because of he wants to get everything settled with mrs bates and he also uh regrets having parted with lord grantham on bad terms he was afraid that coming back would be embarrassing and lord grantham says yeah it is for me to be embarrassed which yeah Lord Grantham pretty much always should be embarrassed. Well, I can totally get behind this plan. I, I, I want to agree with you, but it does seem like one occasion where I'm not sure why he should be embarrassed. Like Who, Lord Grantham? Yeah. Because he yelled at Bates. Who, who quit abruptly without giving any explanation. Yeah, but then he was fine with it later. Well, yeah, later, but that's Bates' fault for not telling him what the deal was. Well, and was. I guess Bates never did actually volunteer any information on the subject. Yeah, Boy, if we ever have a ceasefire on Bates, I will not be able to talk. (laughs) Mrs. Patmore and Daisy are walking, uh, presumably to or from getting food, and happen upon Mrs. Bird waving people into Crawley House. The operation appears to have expanded there. And Mrs. Patmore guesses that she's running a soup kitchen, which Mrs. Patmore knows what's up. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and I I really like Mrs. Bird in this scene, because we don't see that much of Mrs. Bird... 
in general. You know, That's we got true. to see her in that one episode where she subbed in and was fantastic. Right. But she's so funny. She's like, oh, I knew I'd be found out eventually. Well, at least it's you. Like, I just, I love this weird, like, loyalty frenemy ship that has sprung yeah. up between the two of them. Yeah. Because they now, you know, they totally have each other's backs. Yeah. Well, they, they, they understand each other. They earned each other's respect as cooks. Exactly. And they both feel that cook is the highest rank. Uh huh. And yeah, absolutely. I just, I want them to have like a radio show, like delicious dish on Saturday Night Live or something. <laughs> Except there would be a lot more. <laughs> Yes, uh, it, but in any case, Mrs. Patmore is fully on board with the soup kitchen and is, is going to help out. I hope they name it the Archie Philpott's Memorial Soup Kitchen. <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah, so inside, uh, Mrs. Patmore and Daisy pitch in and help serve, and Daisy wonders if Mrs. Crawley knows about it when she says Mrs. Bird uh, says that she doesn't know yet. She expects that when she finds out, she'll be shut down. And then, you know, Mrs. Bird is just kind of explaining the logistics of how she's been trying to run things. And Mrs. Patmore offers her full support. She says, you know, if we can't feed a few soldiers in our own village who've taken a bullet for king and country, which was clearly a popular phrase, you know, then she doesn't know what. Which, all right. Uh, If if you were Irish in Yorkshire, that would totally make sense. Okay. Is she Irish? I always just sort of assumed so. I, I mean, she's got the red so. hair. I mean, she does, I mean, I would, I would imagine her family being Irish. Right. I guess Patmore is well, I think, a very Irish sounding yeah, name. Yeah. Well, and I think I believe that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think in that place at that time, your family being Irish means that you're Irish. Like, I think it's like. Okay. Well, I, just I mean, don't I think hear it. Considered... I don't hear it in the accent from her. Yeah. I don't know. I uh, I don't have a great ear for accents. So okay. I, I really don't know. In the Great Hall, which is now the officer's mess, Daisy apologizes to Edith for building a fire, uh, but because there's no footman around, she is obligated to do it. Edith doesn't care, but uh, thinks She that- kissed a farmer. She's <laughs> thrown convention out the window. <laughs> That's right. She kissed a farmer and she liked it. But <laughs> it's true. Uh, but she does think that Mrs. Hughes might mind. Mrs. Hughes, who very explicitly did not kiss a farmer. As, as she did not, farm. but she did... She was always ragging on Carson that he ought to let the footmen and the maids build the fires. That's true. So, That's true. You know, I think, well, I'm not sure that Edith has a direct line to Mrs. Hughes anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. In any case, uh, Daisy tells Edith that about William being missing along with Matthew. Edith says, oh, is William your beau? She's like, oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just found ourselves a new lead voice actor for Whoopsie Daisy. <laughs> Because, like, it's not that it's good. It's not. It's that it's (laughs) correct. (laughs) No, and it's just great. Because she knows that the correct answer is yes. She just doesn't want to say that. And Mm -hmm. she answers completely honestly. Daisy is pathologically honest. Uh, But Edith offers to see what she can do to track him down. Uh, But she does say, I'm sure it's nothing. Which, I'm sure it's nothing equals certain death. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree on that. Back in the library, Lord Grantham is speaking to Edith, who has gotten right on her promise to try and track him down. Lord Grantham asks how Edith knows Matthew and William didn't just change their plans. And she's like, duh, I I just found out about this five seconds ago. From your dumbest employee. Yeah. Lord Grantham is all irritated and he says, of course, this has happened right as Isabel's gone off to France and we can't reach her. Typical. Which, typical 
of what? Right. Or who? Yeah. Because your wife kicked her out. <laughs> right. This is not... I know you're not up on what's going on usually, Lord Grantham, but... She's never gone to France before. This can't be a typical thing that yeah. happens when she goes to France because this is the first time. Or typical of war? Yeah. You think you're the only one in this situation? <laughs> so, so, so pipe down, Lord Grantham. Yes. See, if we ever call ceasefire <laughs> Lord Grantham, I will have nothing to say. <laughs> Yeah, and Edith basically offers an alternate idea. You know, she's worried that they've they've been captured or taken prisoner, and Lord Grantham is just he just shoots her down. He's like, Well we can't know. Right. Like every instance of Edith attempting to be helpful is just met with derision and look, and all of you who've been writing to us like in defense of Edith, <laughs> I just want you to understand that we try as best we can to work with what the show gives us right. in sequence. Yeah. Like, up until this episode, I would never have put myself on Team Edith. And I'm still kind of embarrassed, too. She's like that friend you know because your parents are friends, <laughs> but you don't want to sit with her at school because then everyone will make fun of you. But, you know, yeah. I mean, she's she's the only person who's had a real arc this season. Yeah. Everybody else is just kind of like, I'm doing this stereotypical World War One thing. Yeah. No, but she's she's become leaps and bounds more sympathetic mm-hmm. as it's gone on. And her wardrobe is much better. Yes. Like, pointedly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, down in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore takes some food away from a mystery servant and gives it to Daisy and tells her to put it in the special storage area. Pretty ostentatiously. Yeah. Like, with kind of a big, like, wink. Like, maybe you should have come up with a better code word. <laughs> 20 different code words, and that was the best one they came <laughs> up with. That was the only one Daisy could understand. <laughs> so, because it's so ostentatious, O'Brien notices she also comes in and asks if she can borrow some baking soda (laughs) and mrs patmore says borrow why are you planning to return it yeah and o'brien just looks even more befuddled she's like dude i just (laughs) i see this is why i mean all the time anytime i try to be polite (laughs) everybody just makes fun of me well i'm pretty sure that that mrs patmore has used that line approximately once a week for her entire life (laughs) (laughs) true at dinner mcgee is discussing her plans to go to malton for agatha spenlow's charity fair (gasps) agatha spenlow (laughs) (laughs) agatha spenlow's charity fair (laughs) i'd like to see that movie Uh uh-huh you know from the cast of the full monty that kind of charity fair tom this isn't a public house <laughs> however despite mcgee's plans to go to malton lord grantham wants the car to go to see bates well then he asks if she can get pratt to take her in the other car right and then she's like oh it doesn't matter i'll just go on monday i'm like give pratt something to do you yeah. know that other chauffeur's trying to bang your daughter right <laughs> because you might want to keep him occupied most of the time <laughs> yeah I mean, you have to pay Pratt the same whether you go to mm-hmm. Moulton or not. You might as well get your money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't the charity fair a single day type event? I, I know, right? Eh. Wacky Brits with yeah. their multi-day charity fairs. Here in America, <laughs> we feel charitable for three hours on a Friday night and then we get hammered. That's the end. <laughs> the Dowager Countess is shocked, but then out of nowhere begins laying into Sybil about inappropriate class relationships. Well, maybe she's trying to convince her not to follow the erroneous example of her father taking the car and going to just see an old servant. That's true. She's like, speaking of class mingling, Sybil, don't (laughs) class mingle. 
Um, and Sybil and Mary have a nice little like wordless exchange because Sybil assumes that this is Mary had like introduced this topic to right, the Dowager right. Countess, and the Mary's like totally doing this. Like, no, I swear, this doesn't come. She's from being me. totally obvious too. Yeah, <laughs> she's just like Ixay, Ixay. <laughs> yeah, um, which was just a very nice sisterly uh-huh. thing there. Yeah, so so Sybil starts to get defensive about it, and McGee leaps in to change the subject and ask, is, or is he going because he wants to give Bates' jobs back? And Lord Grantham says, not entirely, uh, and that it was his fault that they parted on bad terms, which, as we've discussed, I disagree with. Carson comes in and announces that there's a phone call for his lordship. So he gets up and leaves, and we can hear the raucous noise-making of the soldiers who are supposedly convalescing. They seem like a pretty active bunch. Yeah. But uh, the Dowager Countess compares their lot to life in a second-rate hotel where people keep arriving and no one ever leaves, which I'm pretty sure they're getting cycled back out to the front. Yeah. <laughs> rest rest easy. They're leaving. <laughs> The ladies uh, go through as Lord Grantham finishes up his phone call. Edith hangs back, probably upsetting the order of precedence. And she asks what's going on. And then he tells her that William and Matthew are, in fact, missing in action. Lord Grantham asks her to keep it a secret. He is chastising himself for even having told her. Uh, So she, you know, kind of grabs his arm because you can tell he's very upset but she remembers what happened when she showed emotion before in the wake of Patrick's death and thus contains herself and looks very upset. Yeah, she does. No, it's just like, he's just like, oh, Edith, I'm glad I have you for those times when Isis can't be with me. <laughs> O'Brien asks Mrs. Hughes if she is aware of Mrs. Patmore's special storage area. Good night, everybody! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes just says, oh, Mrs. Patmore just has her own system. She's not, she's not going to meddle with Mrs. Patmore's domain. And Mrs. Hughes wonders why Molesley isn't dressing Lord Grantham. <laughs> so is Molesley. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And Molesley says that, you know, that he would be happy to. And then just offhandedly says, oh, by the way, I think I saw one of the officers by the maid staircase. It's probably nothing. Again. Again. <laughs> certain death. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, Mrs. Hughes opens the door to Ethel and Anna's room upstairs. Anna's not there. Or, sorry, Ethel's not there. Yeah, don't you be casting aspersions on my Anna's character. I will not. And then she hears what the subtitles refer to as muffled giggling. And I'm like, (laughs) that is every housekeeper's worst nightmare. I'll giggle your muff. (laughs) She tracks the giggling to its source and finds Ethel and Major Bryant in delicto flagrante. Yeah, they are naked. Mm-hmm. Well, as naked as PBS would allow. Oh, I mean, they have, they're covered in sheets. Oh, but yeah. They're but they're most, most unambiguously naked. Which would take a long time. Oh, of course it's not that. <laughs> That's right. But they were, they're determined. <laughs> to be naked? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I see. It's like, I don't care if you're wearing a hundred corsets. <laughs> I'm going to tap that. <laughs> So Mrs. Hughes tells Major Bryant to get lost and tells Ethel that she is dismissed without reference and without character. Get out. And uh, Ethel's uh, pretty upset because as a maid, even one who wants to get out of service so badly, this is not the way you want to leave service. Yeah, no. Over at Crawley House, Mrs. Bird and Mosley are partying hard as usual. (laughs) 
She asks Mosley if he's nervous about working at the big house. He's pretty excited, and Mrs. Bird thinks that they'll definitely ask him to stay, and they have this moment of fantasizing about, look, there goes Mr. Mosley, valet to the Earl of Grantham. <laughs> Which, I mean, probably is pretty cool for these two. Because, yeah. you know, they were just servants in Manchester. Yeah. Well, I guess he wasn't. He, he, I think he was just sort of bumming around, picking up serving jobs in town. I guess so. But Mrs. Bird was definitely with them right. in Manchester before they moved. Right. Anyway, regardless, they've yeah. come to love each other over these past four years, for they are both boring, limp dish rags of people. <laughs> no, it's, it's tough, because again, I don't enjoy their scenes because they're both so boring, but I don't mean that in any way against either the characters as written or the mm-hmm. actors. Like, they're both well-realized human beings. Yeah. They're just boring. Yeah, they just are boring people. Yeah. Which I guess is a triumph of its own. <laughs> Up in Anna and Ethel's room, Ethel is tearfully packing up her things. Uh, she won't tell Anna why she's been sacked. And, you know, Anna's like, oh, can I, can I help? I can talk to Mrs. Hughes. She's not a bad person. I know she's strict. And Ethel's like, she's not going to listen. Don't bother. Da, da, da. Hey, look on the bright side. You're finally out of service. <laughs> Speaking of crying... <laughs> Lord Grantham comes in to the pub. Mr. Bates says it's closed, but he turns around and is surprised yeah. that it is Lord Grantham, for whom no pub is ever closed. <laughs> That's right. And I, I, I envisioned Bates then saying, I don't know whether I've dreaded this moment or longed for it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I further envisioned him saying that to just everybody that walks into the pub. <laughs> it's like... Oh, Mr. Smith, I don't know whether I've just... Yeah, yeah, I long for it. Give me a beer. <laughs> God, no wonder he's not making any tips. <laughs> Won't serve Thomas's friends. <laughs> Alienating all of his customers. Down in Mrs. Hughes's parlor, Anna's trying to advocate for Ethel, saying that, you know, no matter what she's done, it can't have been bad enough, you know, to have sacked her, that, you know, she can be difficult, but she is, you know, a good employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mrs. Hughes isn't having it. You brought up an interesting point, actually, because I just assumed that Anna would be totally on board with firing somebody for having sex. Well, and that she she would have known Mm -hmm. that Ethel was, you know, flirting with danger. Right. Well, I think I think that Anna doesn't believe that Ethel should be fired for what she did. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that she said she would live in sin with Mr. Bates. That's true. And, you know, I think that she's well aware that that is a firing offense and everybody understands that and she tried to warn Ethel mm-hmm. you know she she's not ignorant about how the world actually works but ideologically speaking Ideolo- and I mean, it's, yeah. you make a very interesting point because it's consistent with everything we've seen of her up until this point she's right. definitely her sympathies lay much more with women's rights mm-hmm. than not yeah Anyway, Mrs. Hughes uh, asks Anna about Mr. Bates and why she kept his presence in Kirby Morrisite a secret. And Anna, you know, classily says it wasn't her secret to tell. So Anna, not being castigated for uh, not revealing this information, uh, possibly because everyone likes her. Yeah. And she's a nice person. (laughs) Back at the pub, Bates is talking with Lord Grantham. We don't like either character, and it's sort of tedious in that regard. (laughs) Um... (laughs) This is the black hole of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Where it's just, you know, he's just, just basically explaining everything that he's already explained to Anna just about the situation with Vera and everything mm-hmm. like that. What's been going on with him. Well, and he says that, you know, Vera's been un- untrue to him and he's he's done as much or worse in his heart 
but he's right. done nothing. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, Jimmy Carter. We're really sympathizing <laughs> with you now. Uh, and Lord Grantham asks about the the stories that Vera was supposed to sell in the newspaper. And Carson never really made it clear what that was about. <laughs> and Bates is like, oh, just some silly nonsense. But they could see on Lord Grantham's face, finally, halfway through the second <laughs> series, he's finally like, maybe there really is a scandal. Yeah, it's been, I mean, five years mm-hmm. at this point. That is, you know what? That's a really long time to keep a secret. Like, I was only able to keep the secret that I snuck into American Pie, the original, for two (laughs) years before my brother ratted me out. (laughs) And And, for those of you unfamiliar with Kelly's family, this was roughly equivalent to killing a Turk with her vagina. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank God nobody ever found out about that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. We've said too much. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) In the servants' hall, Mrs. Hughes is telling Daisy not to be too concerned about William, just trying to keep her anxieties at bay. Edith and Lord Grantham are on the case. Yeah. Uh, O'Brien, Downton's resident soothsayer and killjoy, (laughs) puts forth the idea that they're dead. Uh, Not entirely sensitively, but I guess she feels that she needs to pick up the slack now that Lang is not around to upset people with his... uh, insensitive comments well really because mrs hughes says that there's a million different things that could have happened and o'brien says and one of them is that they're dead and really she could have kept going Uh she'd be like another one is that they're bleeding to death right now another one is that they've been taken prisoner another one is that they've been eaten by wolves (laughs) 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 mrs hughes changes the subject and asks anna if bates might come back Daisy is excited, and Anna doesn't really know what's going on, but Daisy is excited. She wants him back. She thinks he's romantic. Yeah. Which I do have to sign with O'Brien and Thomas, because they're both like, (laughs) what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, he's romantic in the capital R sense, I guess. Yeah. But the subtitles was lowercase r. I don't think Daisy even knows about capital letters, frankly. (laughs) So I don't see how she could know about romanticism. Thomas starts snarking about... Bates coming back and and lording it over everyone and acting like he's cock of the walk. And Mrs. Hughes says, oh, why would that be a problem, Thomas? Is it because the position's already been filled? Boom! Yeah. Boom, Mrs. Hughes. She's doing really well. She is. I like her a lot in this episode. Agreed. Well, because we even forgot the best line that she had about Ethel and Major Bryant when, uh... Major Bryant's like protests like, oh, we were just, and she's like, I know very well what you're doing. I may not be very worldly, but I wasn't raised in a sack. (laughs) (laughs) As if a sack could keep out the horrors of Ginger's sex forever. (laughs) Sorry, Ginger's. (laughs) It's nothing personal. I just really hate Ethel. (laughs) Oh, man. Gwen was great. Ah, Gwen. I hope Gwen's doing all right. Back to Lord Grantham and Bates. He is telling Bates about how Matthew and William are missing and how it affects Lord Grantham, Mm -hmm. that being the important issue here. He is the Earl of Grantham, Tom. (laughs) Yes. He is more important than not that many people. (laughs) (laughs) And he wants Bates to come back because that will make his poor, hurt feelings feel better in this time of trouble. And Bates agrees. I... You know, sure, of course he does. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mr. Bates, he valets me. Speaking words of cripples, valet me. I hope you all enjoy when I do that, because I 
I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> That's sort of the podcaster's promise right there. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore and Daisy are scurrying and delivering baskets to Mrs. Bird at Crawley House, and O'Brien is spying on them. She's taking her Killjoy act on the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> O'Brien and the Killjoys would be an excellent post-punk Riot Girls-esque type band name. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> Mary tracks down Sybil somewhere in their vast halls and tells her that she did not blab to Granny, that it was Granny's just being Granny. You know uh, how Granny's being. <laughs> yes. Sybil says that she hasn't done anything, uh, which, you know, Mary correctly identifies as meaning there are things that could have been mm-hmm. done that she hasn't done, and she's thought about doing things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> You know what thoughts lead to? Actions. That's what. Yeah. I learned that in American Pie. I learned it from Ethel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, well, and also they have a little back and forth about how Sybil's, she says, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. And Mary's like, what did you think that you were going to marry the chauffeur and we'd all come over for tea? <laughs> they don't drink tea in Ireland. It's whiskey. <laughs> Gallons and gallons of whiskey. <laughs> I don't know what she's waiting for if that were the case. <laughs> I'd be like, sign me up! Aaron Gobra! <laughs> Sybil says she's not encouraged Branson, um, but she also has not given him away and asks Mary not to give him away either. She promises as long as Sybil doesn't do promises not to do anything stupid. Mary should have said... <laughs> All right, as long as you don't do anything I would do. (laughs) Here comes the cane of shame as Mr. Bates returns to Downton clicking his cane, his stick. That's right. On the stone stairs. In an epically dramatic shot. Uh Uh-huh. Like, I mean, he really is the king of Batesylvania. Like, Like, memo to Baron Fellows, marry so much, jeepers. (laughs) Yeah. Lord Uh, Grantham never gets a shot like that. No, he certainly doesn't. Uh, so he is back. Mrs. Hughes is thrilled and ushers him into the servants' hall where he can add some substance to the rumors of its return. Uh, Anna's cute. Yeah. She's very excited. She's like, oh, I thought that was you, which, like, who else has a walking stick that you can hear? But uh, yeah. <laughs> listen, I love her so much, I'm going to overlook her poor taste in men. You could have been that Simon Pegg fellow. <laughs> Simon Pegleg. That's what that guy's name is. <laughs> Carson tells Bates that things are different at Downton. What with the uh, the extra kitchen staff and the nurses who live at the hospital, apart from Lady Sybil, mm-hmm. who just pointed out. And Thomas then corrects, like, oh, you mean Nurse Crawley. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, how about you shut up? <laughs> Except nobody ever says that to him. No, I know. Well, and it's like, it's perfectly appropriate for them to refer to her as Lady Sybil. Yeah. Just because you want to refer to her as Nurse Crawley, that's... Anyway. Um, She's a lady nurse. <laughs> it's true. So Bates and Thomas picking up right where they left off. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're little bitch fighting. <laughs> they are bitches, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Bates establishes that he's aware that William and Matthew are missing. Uh, so fine. And then Molesley runs in. Comically. Out of breath. He's worried that he's late. And Mrs. Hughes is like, well, you're not late, but you're also not needed. Mm-hmm. Bates is there and he has resumed his throne and is crushing Molesley's dreams he, once again. He certainly is. And it's it's kind of rough, really. No, it is because 
mostly bought a new shoehorn yeah. for Lord Grantham, presumably with his own money. Yeah. And so he's got this new shoehorn. He's like, oh, I bought this for his lordship. And the base is like, oh, thanks, and just takes it. Yeah. He's like, oh, have you been dressing him? And he's like, well, I was going to start tonight. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, well, you must be relieved to see me. God. Put Bates down for a little bit of that self-awareness I ordered for Cousin Isabel. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was, that's actually, that was rough. And you know what? Mosley would do a better job than Bates. Uh, yeah. He I'd, doesn't have a troublesome ex-wife that shows up and threatens to blackmail everybody. Yeah. Or a troublesome ex-leg. <laughs> Thomas then demands that Daisy fetches him some tea just because everybody had forgotten for a minute what a dick he was and he wanted to <laughs> remind them. And O'Brien tells Bates not to get on Thomas's wrong side. Because he's in charge now, except, except that he's not? Like, I haven't like, seen him do anything except act like a dick. Yeah, like... Which him, is only one part of being in charge. Him telling Daisy to fetch him tea was the first order I believe we've seen him give. No, and, like, O'Brien's, like, telling Mr. Bates not to get on Thomas's wrong side. He's like, you know he works for Lord Grantham, right? Yeah. Who trumps McGee. Also, what, you know full well that neither of them will ever not be on each other's wrong side. Yeah, it's they been this way hate each other. For years. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. Stupid, stupid, stupid O'Brien. <laughs> Bates' return has, however, unleashed O'Brien's scheming spirit once again. Mm-hmm. So she tells McGee that she saw Mrs. Patmore selling food to Mrs. Bird and that Mrs. Hughes doesn't believe her. So McGee says that the next time she sees some uh, fishiness below stairs to come and fetch me, <laughs> which is creepy. Sybil is discussing Bates's return with Branson. It's what everybody's talking about. And she also tells him that Mary knows about uh, his inappropriate coercion of her free will. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. what she knows about. Um, so Branson's like, well, that's me fired. But she says that, no, Mary won't give her away. Branson then uh, continues to do an awesome job of wooing her. Uh-huh. First of all, saying that her nursing is pointless and has nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. All that matters is that she is in love with him. And it's like, whoa, she cares about that nursing a lot, yeah. as you well know. She cares about it way more than you care about your chauffeuring. And yeah. uh, guess which job is more trivial? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, not well played there. Well, and she correctly points out that what he's asking of her is to leave her whole entire life behind. And he is all magnanimously like, oh, well, I'm sure, you know, eventually they'll come around and I'll open, I'll welcome them with open arms. Mm-hmm. And because you're the only one that matters? Yeah. And well, and then she's like, oh, well, what about your people? Would they accept me? And he's like, what do you mean, my people? It's just me and that monkey. <laughs> Anyway, so we're left with them kind of in flux. Well, because he was all excited because she was talking about us. Right. Which, like, yes, in the sense that she was collectively referring to the two of them. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm sure this is the last we'll hear of this. (laughs) Out in the courtyard of failure, uh, Bates is updating Anna on his stupid, stupid plan to divorce Vera. I mean, this thing has more moving parts than a Rube Goldberg machine. (laughs) I don't understand how he thinks this is going to work. But he counsels patience, which fortunately Anna's long on. And then Bates says she's stuck with him and America weeps. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, oh, so your plan only relies on Vera being reasonable. Well, oh, she's done a great go, job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're all we, set. When I first met her, when she uh, 
was there to blackmail you the first time, I said, that's a reasonable lady in a sensible hat. <laughs> Edith runs into Mary in the hallway. And tells her something, that there's something you ought to know. Because <laughs> I'm here <laughs> to remind you of the Matthew Crawley you threw away. <laughs> she is, in fact. And That's not what I think Alanis Morissette sounds like, incidentally. That's what I think Edith sounds like. <laughs> when doing Alanis Morissette at karaoke night. Yep. Down at the Grantham Arms. <laughs> Man, that would be a fun time. <laughs> um, although Mary would refuse to go. <laughs> well, it's nearly a concert, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. In any case, she is there to tell, she wants to tell Mary that Matthew is missing. She feels that she should tell Mary. Mary is, you know, shocked and and uh, tears up. Uh, and Edith's like, oh, I'm not trying to upset you. And Mary's like, I actually believe you. And it is, it's nice. Like, uh-huh. they're both, like, totally like, yeah, this is just a nice thing that Edith has done. And Mary's like, yes, that was nice. Thank you. And nobody's a bitch about it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's nice. Uh, and then Anna comes across Mary crying and, uh, you know, and they talk about it. Yeah, and Mary's like, does everyone downstairs know? And Anna's like, yeah, of course we know. <laughs> yeah. We know everything down there. So apparently well, at this point, McGee is the only one who doesn't know. Yeah. And she's arguably the person in the house who cares the least about Matthew. Yeah, it's true. Which I guess then is appropriate. Yeah. Maybe it's more of like, oh, she won't care. <laughs> yeah. She hates his mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, because Anna says, well, William's missing too. Yeah. You know, it's not just about Matthew, Kelly. <laughs> It is for me. Yeah, me too. Did that violate the ceasefire? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Delete sarcasm. Make that sincere. <laughs> there, fixed. You can do that, right, on the audio? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check the help okay. menu. Yeah, the sar- just take off the sarcasm filter. <laughs> <laughs> if you did that, this entire podcast would just be... <laughs> Back at Crawley House, the merry band of outlaws, which now includes Mr. Mosley as he's been fired from, you know, being useful. Yeah. Uh, they are preparing to feed the veterans. McGee and O'Brien suddenly appear in the doorway. Yeah. And Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Bird explain the soup kitchen and that they're only using the food that the army has paid for and sent to Downton. And so McGee says that she wants them to use food that the house paid for. That way the army can't accuse them of mismanagement. And then in a bit of poetic justice, she forces O'Brien to stay and help her feed the veterans. Yeah, O'Brien's like, I did not put my evil hat on for this. (laughs) No, because she's like, you're going to let them get away with it? And it's like, they didn't really do anything. Yeah, like... like Come on, O'Brien. You're well, and she's the one who's always defending the soldiers. Yeah, like that. I, I did kind of... I thought that was a little... A Sweet little... and sour! Sweet <laughs> and sour! All right. That's my shield. Sweet and sour! Fair enough. That now brings us to a lady who's sweet and sour in her own right. Our very own kitchen coquette who will be bringing us another of our recurring segments, Fashion Backwards. All right. Well, considering that there's a war on, there hasn't been a whole lot of new fashion stuff to explain. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about etiquette as it applies to the cook. Oh. It's an interesting contrast because Mrs. Bird is working in a smaller middle class house. And that was pretty much what the information I came up with refers to. Mm-hmm. Because one of the questions that I have when watching this episode is how Mrs. Patmore manages to have time to help out with it. Mm. You know, I, you know, they don't spend a lot of time, but it's just one of those things. Like, right. you know, when does Mike Mulligan have time to go to the bathroom? <laughs> uh, 
readers of Beverly Cleary will know what I'm talking about. They sure will. But, you know, I'm like, how, because she's preparing, I could see maybe if she was still only preparing meals for the family. Mm -hmm. But she is preparing meals for all these soldiers, and she does have extra help, but she said, you know, they don't really help much. And in smaller houses, they expected the cook to be a maid of all work as well, and to only prepare simple dishes, because anything elaborate would be handled by the mistress or the daughters of the house. So there's a big difference between being a cook in a small house and a cook in a large house. Okay. One of the things that I think probably uh, was the same for both are the prerequisites. Apparently, it was common for the cook to think she had the right to sell drippings, bones, empty tins and jars, things like mm-hmm. that on the side, you know, the mm. refuse of the house uh-huh. and keep that money like as a commission for doing it. Huh. This guide that I found on Edwardian Promenade says, it may be well to note here that perquisites and commissions from the tradespeople should be absolutely forbidden, but it is wise to make this clear when engaging the cook. So, you know, this is the the same as, you know, Daisy trying to sell ashes to a soap maker or something like that. Right, They're not right. allowed to do it. Also, to kind of keep an eye on the prices that, that the house is paying for food. And in order to do that, the mistress of the house, or in the case of Downton Abbey, Mrs. Hughes, mm. would be in charge of writing out all of the orders for the food stores. And that's come up before. Right, right. Um, it's also suggested that one should uh, ascertain the quantity of milk ordered is actually left and to weigh the meat and the bread to make sure that the, co- the cook is not skimming off the top. Oh. And it says, where you have a conscientious, careful woman, there is no need for supervision. She will do it herself. But where young and inexperienced girls are in charge, it is hardly fair to put temptation in their way by leaving them to their own devices. <laughs> Which somebody should have said that to Ethel. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting because... It makes perfect sense why both Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Bird are so offended about the fact that Mrs. Hughes won't let them keep their own stores and have the store key. Right. Because if they both kind of come up through this system, you know, Mrs. Patmore probably worked in at least, you know, a middle class house or two. Yeah, yeah. Before she became this this cook. And Mrs. Bird obviously is still in that position. Right. So for them at their age to still be treated like a young, you know, person of like Daisy's age is extremely insulting. Mm-hmm. Dress for cooks. Cooks should always wear washing dresses and white aprons with coarse ones for cleaning purposes. Black dresses and fine aprons are usually worn in the afternoon, which I don't see that happening here. Yeah. And this yeah. may be from way earlier in the period, too. Because, mm. I mean, you know, Mrs. Patmore, I don't think, ever goes outside. Yeah. This is the first episode we've really seen her, like, well, that's not true. But, you know. Yeah, I mean. In her day-to-day life, she's inside for most of it. Yeah. Frequently, cooks do not wear caps, except in houses where they are expected to answer the front door. Huh. Uh, which is interesting, because, obviously, that's a health hazard now. But. Yeah. So, I guess, I mean. Perhaps then, back in Manchester, if Mrs. Bird was their only servant, she would have been in that position of answering the front door. Mm -hmm. So here is where we get into the schedule, the cook's timetable, not to use a charged word from McGee and Isabel. (laughs) So this is a schedule, this is for a household where two maids are kept and they have a charwoman for half a day on Tuesdays and Fridays. So that's somebody who just kind of comes in and subs. Okay. 6.30 a.m., light the kitchen fire, sweep the hall, do doorstep, brasses, etc., clean boots. 7.30, prepare and have kitchen breakfast. 8.30, prepare dining room breakfast, tidy kitchen, wipe out larder, which is a pantry, which I didn't know when I tried to read Oliver Twist in the third grade. (laughs) Uh, At 10 a.m., receive orders for the day from the mistress. At 11, prepare lunch and kitchen dinner. 
at 12 noon, have kitchen dinner. Usually they get an hour for lunch, okay. uh, which is much nicer than most retail establishments will allow these days. So yeah. good on you, Edwardian England. <laughs> uh, at 1 p.m., you serve lunch to the family you work for, clear up and wash the kitchen dinner things, tidy the kitchen, do any light cooking or cleaning. At 4, you would change your dress if you were in that position. Mm-hmm. And the housemaid would usually prepare and clear away tea. And we don't get a real sense of that. But I think on several occasions, Mrs. Hughes has instructed a maid to take tea. Mm-hmm. So then they would prepare dinner and then serve dinner at about 7.30. At 8.30, they would wash up and tidy up in the scullery, have supper and tidy the kitchen. And at 10 o'clock, go to bed and start all over again. All right. I can only imagine Mrs. Patmore's schedule is much crazier than that. Mm-hmm. Because she does have to do these fancy dinners every now and again. And in the country, they eat much later than they would in a city. Oh, okay. Uh Dinner, well, and I don't know if that applies only to dinner parties, but, you know, frequently they weren't eating until nine in the evening. Mm -hmm. So it's not perfectly clear. So I just, I'm just curious how she's making time for herself to go out and do this soup kitchen thing. Yeah. But anyway, I will no longer question the wisdom of Julian Fellows. (laughs) I also found some interesting stuff about British food. I was having a conversation with Red, who co-hosts Boar's Gore and Swords, which, by the way, is returning this week for new episodes of Game of Thrones, if you're interested. And you should be. You very much should be. But he was talking about how great the food looked and, you know, how food from Britain has a very bad reputation. Right. Uh, and it turns out, basically, that British food was very well respected in the latter part of the 19th century. And even the beginning of the 20th century, where we are, mm-hmm. uh, originally, you know, it was influenced by everyone's Puritan roots and, you know, the sort of typical idea about uh, an English meal is, you know, boiled vegetables and a joint of meat. Right. And so part of it was that puritanical simplicity kind of getting into everybody's DNA. Mm-hmm. And they also avoided strong flavors because strong flavors were associated with the continent, which were Catholics. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's only very recently that people in England aren't, you know, absolutely hostile toward Catholics. Right. Well, and it's, and I mean, and it's just as Anna said earlier in the series, we don't like doing things the way they do it. Precisely. So, you know, it's a bit, a bit of stubbornness, a bit of tradition, but they did eventually, you know, toward the, the middle of the 19th century, adopt the strong French influence. Mm -hmm. What I was reading, it's the salt NPR's food blog. They were saying that even though they had all of these French influences, there was still this very strong undercurrent of, of doing things the British way. Mm-hmm. Then they also brought in Indian flavors during the Raj. Mm. So, like, you know, chutney was very popular and curried meats. So all of these different things kind of combined, and there was a very complex cultural identity around food in, in Britain. But then World War I happened. Right. And a lot of the kitchen staff who were required to pull off some of these more elegant and complicated delicacies you know, they went off and some of them were killed, some were wounded, some came back and just didn't go back into service. Mm-hmm. So the entire class of people who was responsible for these giant, you know, house parties that we see mm-hmm. are gone. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's as if you've just kind of done a Jenga on it, you know, <laughs> yeah. and just pulled out a whole row. Mm-hmm. And so things just kind of like, devolved into mediocrity. I mean, you have rationing happening. There's a bunch of different things kind of right. combining to make food be less tasty. And then, you know, they didn't really have time to rebound between World War One and World War Two. And there was food rationing after World War Two for fourteen years. Yeah. 
So the situation was pretty dire up until the mid 50s. And at that point, people were encouraged to incorporate garlic, olive oil, and fresh herbs, referred to as exotic ingredients, (laughs) which I kind of scoffed at a little bit. But then I thought about it because garlic in particular would have been associated with Italian cooking. Right. And that's the seat of of Catholicism. So, I mean, it it makes a lot of sense that they would be so resistant to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of back on the upswing now that, uh, and obviously, you know, just the world in general has changed. Right, right. And, you know, there's kebab shops. Yes. As I learned on pulling. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So so that's a little bit of background on the kitchen and kind of how that worked. All right. uh, again, thanks to Evangeline Holland of Edwardian Promenade and the Salt NPR's food blog for uh, doing my research for me. All right. And thanks to you. Oh, you. <laughs> You'll get an extra meatball for dinner. Hooray. Up in, uh, I believe it's in the Great Hall, Major Clarkson stops Thomas, who's walking by, and uh, says that he's, he's been getting rather imperious with the staff below stairs, one Daisy in particular. You can just see him casting around <laughs> while he's, he's like, ah, girl, girl, flower name, flower name, uh, dandelion, uh, violet. No, that's old lady Grantham. Uh, <laughs> Daisy, that's it, Daisy. <laughs> yeah. So Thomas is like, yeah, all right, whatever, and he moves on. Uh, <laughs> and then Dr. Clarkson immediately turns to Mrs. Hughes, is right there, and he's like, well, I tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, Thomas is getting grander than Lady Mary, and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, I leap up and I say, nobody's grander than Lady Mary. <laughs> he did. It's not funny. <laughs> Major Clarkson's face, you can see he's wishing for the sweet embrace of death and the day that he can leave Downton behind. Yeah. Lord Grantham just walks by and looks constipated. <laughs> it's not a very good scene. No. He's probably thinking about his dog. <laughs> uh, you mean Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> O'Brien tells Thomas that uh, it must have been Bates that ratted him out to Major Clarkson. And she also says that Bates is more vulnerable now than he was before because they know more. It's all, it's like, what are you. Are you? I'm beginning to think that O'Brien and Thomas have you know one of those psychological disorders that causes you to like retreat into a world of your own design <laughs> yeah. that has no relation to like what's actually happening around you like heavenly creatures or something because <laughs> yeah. it's just like i don't understand like look i don't like Bates as much as you don't like Bates, but he's never done anything to either of you i know that you didn't instigate he's just a dude with a cane that wants <laughs> to do a job and be annoying yeah and he's not even annoying you that's right their long-standing grudge is bizarre. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham finally tells McGee about William and Matthew in yeah. her dressing room. The first line we hear is her or is him saying, "I don't know why I didn't tell you sooner." To which I mentally added, "To be honest, I forgot I was married." <laughs> Uh, they talk about the fact that they can't reach Isabel, which you can imagine uh, Mickey is doing a silent happy dance about <laughs> Mary. I hope she's dead. <laughs> Mary comes in and, and tells them that Edith has already told her about it. And Lord Grantham is concerned because he thinks Edith's just stirring the shit as usual. Right. Mary's like, no, weirdly, she's not doing that. Right. And I'm as surprised as everybody. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Mary continues to slam the concert. I am not inviting her to Bonnaroo. I don't care <laughs> what you say. And then uh, Lord Grantham and McGee leave the room and Mary just kind of looks at herself in a mirror. Yeah. 
down at the fabled concert. Edith is playing the piano while Major Bryant is doing a little uh, magic act. Uh, is pulling some handkerchiefs out of his sleeve and whatnot. In in the crowd, the Dowager Countess is talking to Lord Grantham. Uh, she says that she's not too anxious that this is wartime and things happen, and she's confident that things will work out. But and that she has gotten used to Matthew. Mm-hmm. Probably the highest praise he will ever get from her. Yeah. Well, and she also says that like if I don't know who knows who will turn up next, some chimney sweep from somewhere. <laughs> Which was funny, but it's also like, do you seriously not know who the next heir is after this guy? Did you not learn from the death of Patrick that you should really know who's on deck in this situation? Nope. Everything's fine. They're still rich. Clearly. Major Bryant finishes up and tips his hat, and he's all like, you should see me make a maid disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies. Edith calls Mary over to the piano, and Mary gives a little speech about how you don't realize what a rare thing this is. Boy, you know what else they thought was a rare thing? A war that lasts for four years. <laughs> yeah. But here they are, the Crawley sisters, which McGee says is a unicorn mm-hmm. or uh, some such. And uh, Mary starts singing. She's fine. Like, she's not a great singer, but she's perfectly capable and the uh, wounded people are sitting around being various degrees of entertained. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, really showing what nobody seemed to explain to Mary at any point. They're, they did not want her for her singing ability. They wanted her because the men all like to have a socially acceptable excuse to stare at a pretty lady for Yeah, a while. well, I mean, Edith points that out in the beginning, that yeah. if you know the men are so keen for us to do it, because if we don't, then there won't be any girls. Yeah. And really what she meant is, if you don't do it, there won't be any girls, <laughs> because they made her face the piano the entire time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The men's spirits, they don't look very lifted to me. <laughs> yeah. But they do all start singing to drown out Lady Mary, which I thought was great. Uh, yeah, good call, people. <laughs> But then, suddenly, in the middle of the song, it's Matthew! Oh my god! He walks in! Everyone cries! And by everyone, I mean me! Yeah. No, it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. We, we had no idea. And he, he just shows up, and William is with him. And Lord Grantham, the center of the story, as always, goes over to Matthew and says, you know, my very dear boy, and... I'm so glad that you're safe. <laughs> I, 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 me, me, me. Yes. William gives Daisy a little look, and she gives a little, oh, I'm glad you're not dead, but also wish I had never had to see you again. (laughs) And then Matthew goes up front and starts the song back up, singing along with Mary. And, Which uh, is, again, to remind you, if I were the only boy in the world. If I were the only girl in the world. Oh, and you the only boy? No. I think it's the other way. Yeah, well, whatever it is. Well, look, we don't have to sing it at a concert. (laughs) That's right. God willing. Matthew uh, later explains how they got lost, and no one thought to notify their unit. Like, how did they get away from those Germans? There was a ton of Germans. They, uh... (laughs) The Germans, Kelly, they're not that bright. Mm, Good point. Mrs. Hughes informs Lord Grantham that the Dowager Countess is leaving, so he skedaddles and leaves Mary alone with Matthew. Matthew tells Mary that he's going up to London to see Lavinia, and not to worry, he's sure he'll like Richard Carlyle just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as long as he treats Mary well. Yes. And if he does not, then he will have Matthew to answer to. I really want to make a joke, but I won't. (laughs) That's what the ceasefire is all about. (laughs) Making our podcast less funny. (laughs) (laughs) 
Bates and Anna talk about how happy they are, that they're just the happiest two people that ever happied and they can't believe it, etc. And O'Brien and Thomas just sort of loom down the hallway. It's such a weird shot. Yeah. Like, it's it's so, like, surreal looking. Yeah. I don't understand. It's like, is this actually the ghost of O'Brien and Ex- Thomas? No, that's exactly, like, a, it's like uh, El Orfanato or something, yeah. you know? I'm like, yeah. ah! <laughs> Have you been here all the time? Why are you wearing a mask? <laughs> and O'Brien accuses Thomas of having gone soft and that she is better. Be- because he momentarily did not express an interest in destroying Mr. Bates. Right. She's proud that she is better at holding a grudge. Which, why are they holding a grudge again? What no. did he do other than show up and be crippled? Well, I think he showed up and was crippled, Kelly. All right. Well, he anyway. didn't even apologize for it. <laughs> well, clearly we're stuck with this. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Indeed. Mrs. P downstairs announces that she felt in her waters that William was all right, and that's all I want to know about it. (laughs) So he, you know, is talking to Daisy and telling her that he says the thought of her keeps him going. Then a, uh, oh, that wasn't downstairs. That was upstairs. Ah. Anyway, sorry to confuse you with the whole upstairs, downstairs thing. (laughs) Uh, Upstairs still, the mystery servant comes in and whispers into Mrs. Hughes's ear, and she rushes downstairs where she finds Ethel. Ethel? Who's pregnant. Because of course she is. I did not see that coming. I just hate that there is just never an instance in film or television of somebody having sex and something horrible not happening. Yeah, I mean, this is... I mean, I've had sex on numerous occasions where just nothing... Good or bad has happened. Thus far, we're aware of three people that have had sex. They were punished with a dead Turk, a miscarriage, and an unwanted baby. Uh-huh. Like, so I guess what we're saying is that Julian Fellows clearly does not share Anna's possibly pro, <laughs> pro-woman pro views on sex and relationships. Well, and I mean, I guess you could count Mr. Pamuk as having suffered a consequence, but I mean, he was the one who died, so he kind of got off easy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And like, Lord Grantham really didn't get affected as, you know, I look. mean, look, we all got to die some way. Might as well be in bed with Mary. <laughs> I will take this under advisement, dear. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, uh, so she's pregnant and sad, and again, the passage of time in this episode is so bad. Because yeah. it's like, how long have how long have you been preparing for this concert? And like, did you know you were pregnant before you left? Or look, Kelly, Major Brian's magic act took at least six months to put together. <laughs> <laughs> if only he lasted that long in that closet. Oh <laughs> no, because there's that, and then like Matthew gets that letter from Mary, but I'm not sure if it's supposed to be the same day. I don't know. Look, yeah. the timeline here is all out of whack. If somebody wants to make us a chart <laughs> and explain how it works, that would be great. Yeah. But until then, now is the time on Up Yours Downstairs when we give out the Abby Award. Hooray! Hooray! So our Gibson girl for this episode, I think, is the Dowager Countess. She's the only one wearing a lot of color. Yeah. She's bringing back a lot of the cool uh, jet beating yeah. that we liked so much from the first series. And... Uh, the outfit she's wearing at the concert is like that teal number, which I think you had right. mentioned before. Right. I, I do like that. And yeah. I really actually was struck by the outfit she wore in her first scene with Mary out in the garden. Mm-hmm. It had a really neat little sort of sheer netting going on at the collar and a nice hat. Just overall, the Dowager Countess is not letting the war uh, interfere with her wardrobe. Okay. And uh, we approve of that. Yeah. 
Best evasion. Best evasion. I feel like a lot of confrontations were had. Yeah. This was not like, a good episode for evading things. Yeah, like they just like went down and, you know, yanked Bates out of that pub. Which, by the way, can we all take a moment for the red line? Yeah. Like, hey, they had a perfectly good bartender going, and all of a sudden he just ditches them. Well, that's cripples for you. <laughs> Dr. Clarkson evaded having to actually name somebody to run Downton. That's right. He just, yeah, yeah, so that worked. For apparently a year, yeah. so good on him. And he just uh, refused to step in at any point mm-hmm. and eventually worked itself out. Sybil so, yeah. evaded uh, having to do or say anything with regard to Branson. She just kind of stood there like an open-mouthed log <laughs> and uh, let the world happen around her. Yeah. Uh, Matthew and William evaded those Germans. That's true. And that, we don't even know. No. That, they were in a tight spot. They really were. So I think, you know what? Best evasion. Uh, Matthew and William evading the Germans. Well done, guys. Yeah. Way to live to see another patrol. Yeah. I appreciate that because I do not want to see Julian Fellow's idea of a prisoner of war camp. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, we're doing a little variation this week on most improved overbite. Ah. Going to uh, regular overbite winner Edith. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. She just, she's nicer. She's prettier. Yeah. I kind of want to raid her, her wardrobe now. Uh, she's really done a 180. Yeah. Good old Edith. All right. Well, well, well deserved there. Yeah, I think. her prize is a tree. <laughs> and that brings us to the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. That's right. What are you thinking there, Tom? Uh, we barely mentioned her. Yeah, like, she's not in this episode much, and when she is, she's just you know prattling on about not mixing ranks. Which right. I love mixing ranks. <laughs> yeah, I mix my ranks all the ding dong day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say that she was the only one, like, she figured out that Sybil was seeing somebody inappropriate, like, just with her own insight. You right, know, but that wasn't, like, fun or cool. No, it wasn't. <laughs> and that's just, I. it was just something that I noticed that she was the only one intelligent enough to think of that. So well, that, and really the only good zinger was that thing about, I'm a woman, Mary, I can be as contrary as I like, which is kind of yeah, hacky. Yeah, that I feel like she got that out of, like, the Daily Sketch or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it seemed recycled. Yes, yeah, not... I'm going to call it a one. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever given her a one. I don't think we have. Well, we're sorry to announce that Maggie Smith, scale of Maggie Smith's, is at its nadir right yeah. now. Although we will take this moment to remind everyone, one Maggie Smith greater than all other scales of measurement. Absolutely. So. Definitely. It's still Maggie Smith, but it's just the one this week. Yeah. So hopefully next week she'll pick it up. That's right. You know? Be back to her old vinegary self. <laughs> All right. Well, that has been our uh, recap of Downton Abbey Series 2, Episode 4. And until next time, up, up yours, downstairs. in your pipe and smoke it.
that in your pipe and smoke it. Oh, no. <laughs>